Acts chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible with you today, if you did not bring yours or forgot one, or perhaps you don't own a Bible, would you grab one from under a seat in front of you? Acts chapter 14 is where we are today. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one home with you after the service. Acts 14. Last couple of weeks, we've looked in Acts 13 and discussed again how Paul and Barnabas separated by the Holy Spirit for a work that he set them apart to do, sharing the gospel, taking it to the Gentile world. We saw, if we could put up a map real quickly here, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, where they left from on the right side over there, Antioch, traveled to the island of Cyprus, did ministry there, then headed up to Perga back on the mainland. And in chapter 13, spent a large part of this time in Pisidian Antioch up there where we saw, and we've been looking at the time that they were there, sharing the gospel, telling the truth of God's word, that through Jesus Christ we can have our sins forgiven, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the one who came to, to save, save the world from their sins. And that message has been received greatly. There's been great fruit from that ministry of theirs, but also met with great hostility. Many that are coming against that, and even to the point of threatening their lives and running them out out of town, if you would, and that's where we find ourselves as we begin in chapter 14. They've traveled from Pisidian Antioch after we talked the last time, the persecution that came against them that says in verse 51 of chapter 13, they shook the dust off their feet and went to Iconium which is about 85 miles away, and that's where we find ourselves as we begin chapter 14, verse 1. It says, in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So here we see they go to Iconium, they continue to do what they had been doing. They go and they share the truth of God's word. They share it in such a way, it tells us, that many people believe. Well, what way is that? The same way they've been doing it. Sharing the truth, all of it, sharing it with them, and it tells us many come to faith through this process. But again, just like we've seen before, with this great fruit, there's also some great hostility that comes against the preaching of God's word, the sharing of the truth, and the results of that. And we see here, very specifically, it tells us in verse 2, those who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. That word embittered literally means poison. They were poisoning their minds. The truth that was being shared was being combated with, the, with, the, with deception, with, with mistruth, with lies. And we, we know that. The enemy, the enemy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the devil himself, is the father of lies. That is how he is going to combat the truth with lies. Guys, it is a battle of the mind. It always has been. It will continue to be. The truth and, and lies being laid out before. And I, I love this as, as it tells us. Verse 3 is a very important verse. It tells us because of this what they were facing. Notice that verse, that word therefore. Because of the hostility, because the fruit that is taking place and because of the hostility that is coming against them, it says that they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance on the Lord. Speaking boldly with reliance on the Lord. Guys, those two things are so important. 
together. We can't, don't, we can't separate that first, the second part from the first part. It tells us that because of the hostility that came against them, they spoke out boldly, relying on the Lord. That's so important because here's why. When somebody comes against you, our tendency, all of us in our flesh, is to speak out boldly. The problem is we speak out boldly in our flesh. <laughs> and we, we have to make sure that we are speaking out boldly, relying on the Lord. When the enemy comes against us and we are going back, we have to rely on the Lord for two things. First of all, so that we can identify our enemy. In our flesh, the enemy is the one who's coming after us, the individual. But the Bible is clear, that's not our enemy. And then how do we fight that enemy? The Bible tells us that clearly too. The Bible says that our enemy is not flesh and blood. But it is a spiritual enemy that we fight. The individuals that are coming against us are not our enemy. It is the one who is driving behind them, the spiritual forces behind it. And because it's that way, we can't fight it the way that we want to in our flesh. It's not a physical battle, it's a spiritual battle as well. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. First of all, notice what we're destroying. We're destroying speculations, not people. He says it very clearly that we are in a war. Guys, we are in a battle. Don't let anybody convince you otherwise. As Christians, this is a battle. It's daily. It's minute by minute. We're in a war. Paul, Paul makes that very clear. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not of our flesh. They are spiritual in nature. And this is so important. So important. We have to know this because if we're, anybody tired of not identifying the enemy, right? We understand that. We talk about all, we have to know our enemy in order to defeat our enemy. And our enemy here, we know, is a spiritual enemy. Knowing how to defeat him, we have to wear the armor. It tells us in Ephesians, the armor that we carry. But the weapons that we use, the weapon that we use, it's right here, guys. Paul tells us the weapon of our warfare in Ephesians chapter 5, the word, the sword. He calls it the sword. But there's one thing about the sword, guys. The sword is not a blunt force object. We don't go beating people with a sword. The sword is a precision object. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter four, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. A precision instrument does that, dividing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And if we use the word of God in a way it wasn't, God didn't design for us to use it, we defeat the purpose, not help the purpose, not complete the purpose. Guys, when we're, using, when we're doing brain surgery, we don't use a sledgehammer. <laughs> it's a precision thing. 
And, and I, I say this, guys, because, again, we have a tendency in this. And I'm, I'll just, I'll stand right up in front and say, remember two weeks ago when we were in chapter 13 and Paul called out that guy? He called him the son of the devil. Remember that? Ever want to do that? Just me? Okay, you. All right, two of us. Cool. All right. Two of us being honest. <laughs> I mean, in our flesh, that's how we want to fight and lash out. And it did tell us, Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, said that, guys, if we are full of the Holy Spirit, that will be a very rare, if ever, occasion that God says, go ahead, let that loose. But Paul never forgot, even the one who said that himself, who God said that. He never forgot. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, guys, we were all sons of the devil. Ephesians chapter 2, all of us. We're no different than them. The only difference between them and us is God has rescued us. And in this battle, never forget, they're just like we were. And as Paul was, or, or Peter and Jesus were having that exchange with the disciples, and, and Jesus was talking to them, and he said, who do men say that I am? And they said all sorts of things, Elijah, John the Baptist, all these things. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, because... Man didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven revealed that to you. And upon that statement, on that truth, on that rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Guys, the gates of hell are what is keeping others on the other side. They're prisoners of war, and our job is to get back there and to get them out. That's our role. And Jesus said that truth, that he's the Christ, the son of the living God, the, the living gospel message, is what allows us to go in and rescue them out, never forgetting those individuals that we look at and we say, they're the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're deceived and they're, they're behind enemy lines, but that's our job is to go get them. We can, we can so easily, and again, in this time that we're living in and the things that we see on a regular basis, we know that the people that, can, that are doing these acts or these different things, they die in this act. They go to hell. And, pe- and we have to be careful that we don't just say, well, they deserve that. Because, guys, so do we. We deserve it too. Don't ever ask God for what you deserve. Praise him for his mercy. Not giving us what we do deserve. They're lost because they're deceived. It's a battle for the mind, and they've lost that battle to this point. But now we, that's, that's how we use this. And, and guys, we're called Christians. We talked about this a few weeks ago. That means Christ followers. We're his ambassadors. We are his representatives. We just sang a song that says, I'm not ashamed of the one who saved my soul. We're not ashamed of him. If, the, if we truly mean that, that means we represent him exactly as he is. We don't change it a bit. And he is the one who hates sin but loves sinners. And that needs to be our heart as well when we represent him. Hate sin but love sinners. I've been challenged. Somebody said that that's not in the Bible Sure is, <laughs> Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I love that because it makes it personal if he did it for me, us. It's not just in this room. I've said this before, and guys, I, I, it just bears repeating. The world needs to know who we are for, far more than what we stand against. 
Stand up, stand up for Jesus is what we just sang. For Jesus. And yes, it is, going to, it is going to call for us, not being ashamed of the gospel, not being ashamed of this one who laid it all out for us. We are going to have to stand up against the opposition that comes and boldly speak out. But we must never forget, we have to rely on the Lord. And notice, I love this, as we do, verse three again, who was testifying to the word of his grace? Who's testifying? God is testifying. That's not Paul testifying. It's God who is testifying through Paul. If we speak out boldly, relying on the Lord, he will testify through us. Guys, that's how it works. Granting signs and wonders be done by their hands. Again, signs and wonders. God granting that. This wasn't Paul's miracle. This was God's miracle through Paul. As we continue, verse four, it says, but the people of the city were divided. The miracles that they saw, the word that they saw, people's lives being changed, but so much poison being spread, it says the people were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, in the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Again, the people are divided, greatly divided. Jesus said that this would happen, that there would be division, even division amongst families because of him. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he said, based on that, there's two, you have two options. He said, you're either for me or against me. There's no neutral ground. You accept it all or you accept none of it. And because of that, there's a great division. There's a division even, he said, that will divide families. Parents, children. That will divide families. He didn't come to divide families. He came to bring the truth. He came to bring, bring salvation to all. But that truth will cause division. Many of these come to faith and then they start sharing this faith and it's causing this great division. We need to understand that, guys, as God radically change our, changes our lives, and we then take that truth out into the world, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, expect divided results, expect differing responses. And those that come against us hostily, those that reject the truth, we see in even just these few verses a couple of ways to handle it. First time, sometimes God will lead us, if we're relying on him, to spend time there, to be patient, to continue to pour in. But there are other times, as it sees here, that there are times that we are, and to steal a, a, a Greek word, I'll give you one here, skedaddle. <laughs> There's times to skedaddle. <laughs> that means to hightail it on out of there. Actually, it's not a Greek word, but it is a word. Did you know that? I didn't, I didn't know that. I thought it was, it's actually in the dictionary. Some free information for you. But to take our efforts elsewhere. There are times when God will say, you know what? Come, I'll, I'll open this door again later. Leave this for a while. Let those seeds sit in the ground. And you go over here and minister in other places. And that's what Paul and Barnabas do. Now notice, and I love this, verse, verse seven says, they continued to preach the gospel. They did not go to the next town and open up a signs and wonders conference. 
they went and taught the gospel. They went and shared the word of the Lord. They weren't traveling miracle workers. They were soldiers of the cross. They were bringing the word of God. And God doing certain things at certain times as he chooses to, to bring, to bring uh, credibility or for whatever it is that God is using these things to do, but it's God's choice. And it's for his glory always. We see in verse 8, they get, to this, they get to Lystra, and at Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. Now, this word man tells us that, that's used here is he is an older man, at least middle age, has never walked from his mother's womb. He has no muscle tissue that works, no tendons, no anything. He's he never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, and when he had fixed his gaze on him, Paul fixing his gaze on this man, and had seen that he had the faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leapt up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that Paul had, what Paul had done, that's the first mistake, it wasn't Paul that did it, but that's what they perceived, they raised their voice, saying in Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Again, a man lame since birth, Paul calls out to him and says, get up. He sees it, he perceives that he has the faith to be made well, cries out in the middle of his sermon to this guy, stand up and walk, and he does. And the response from the city is one that they're, they're very heavily, obviously in Greek mythology and worship of the Greek gods, a temple to Zeus just outside of town. There was, a, there was a tradition that went around that at one time Zeus and Hermes had visited people, the, the, the island before, or the place before, and that nobody gave them any hostility or hospitality. And so they went to their, this home of this older couple who showed them hospitality. They took that couple up on top of a mountain, turned them into trees. I don't know how nice that is. But then, but then destroyed the rest of the city. That is a tradition. So they're thinking, we're not going to make that mistake again. Here they are. They start throwing this big thing going on. But I want to go back to Paul as he's sharing this message, as he's sharing the gospel. And he notices, he sees this man, and he cries out to him, and he says, get up. Stand up. And we need to understand a couple of things as we look through this. First of all, again, God, Paul was doing the ministry that the Holy Spirit had separated him to do, filled with the Holy Spirit as he went out. We saw back, back in verse 3 that it was God that was doing these miracles and these things through him. But there was something about it that happened when Paul saw that, and it just registered. He saw that he had faith, but he knew also that God desired to heal this man. He heard from God. Now, first thing I want to I want to point out to this is God doesn't hasn't given all of us that ministry, and we're just somehow waiting to tap into it. God gives us each individual personal ministries. If you are a born again believer here today, He has something very specific and personal that He desires for you to do. He will equip you for that ministry. He will equip you for whatever it is that he's calling you to do. It will probably be, and I will tell you this right now, it will probably be far beyond what you can do on your own. And you're going to have to rely on him to do it. 
Now, speaking to everybody in the room, are you hearing from God what that is? Do you know what God has specifically called you to do? If, if not, there's only one of two options. Either one, he's not speaking, or two, you're not listening. <laughs> and I believe it's the latter for all of us. And, and I just ch to challenge each of us in this, if we're not hearing from God, again, it's probably because we're not, we're not listening, we're not tuned in. Understanding that God tell, it tells us in his, he speaks often in a still, small voice. And when we can't hear that, when we can't make that connection, it's oftentimes because there's way too many other distractions around. If you're in the middle of the city, you're in, in, in downtown Phoenix, and you look up at a full moon, you can still see it, right? But nowhere near as bright and as clear as if you were to go up, up into the mountains, get away from all the city lights. It's not because the moon is brighter there. It's just because there isn't all of the other things that are distracting from it, that are diluting it. And we need to get in those places regularly in our lives. Daily, I would challenge us, where we get away from all of the other distractions, away from our cell phones and our iPads and our computers and our, all of these other things. And get alone with the Lord, get alone with his word, and say, God, speak to me. What is it that you desire for me to do? We also need to understand a couple of things as well as God is looking for those that he will, he will give these instructions to and give all this stuff. First of all, are we going to be obedient? That's another thing I think that stands in the way with, with us a lot of times is we're saying, God, I want to do something great for you. And God says, I want you to do something great for me. But if I told you to do this, you wouldn't. The Bible tells us that he knows our intentions, he knows our thoughts, he knows all of those things far greater than we do. As a matter of fact, that's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Will we be obedient? Are there things that God has clearly told you in your past that you have not been obedient to? A relationship to restore? A phone call to make? Whatever it might be that you haven't been obedient to? Go back and take care of those things and expect him then to start giving you. Be faithful in the little things. God will give you greater things, but we need to be obedient. And secondly, guys, we can never, we can't ever take the glory. I'm thankful at times that God hasn't entrusted me with greater things because I know my flesh at times too much is that I can start, I can start getting a little puffed up. Pride, pride is something that we all need to battle with. And I, looking at this story right now, in our flesh, who could blame Paul if he, fi if he said, fi finally, some recognition. Everywhere I've gone, I've been doing what God calls me to do, and what does it get me? Threats, persecution, being run out of town, finally. Somebody's going to throw me a banquet. Awesome. <laughs> and we, we, we chuckle at that, but guys, that's, that's in every one of us in our flesh. There's a very well-known pastor at one time, very hugely fruitful ministry. Doing amazing things for the Lord. But he fell, and he fell hard. 
devastated the church, devastated a lot of people. And when somebody went up and had a private conversation with him about it, they asked him, what happened? And he said, I just got caught up in the celebrity. And the man said to him, who told you you were a celebrity? It can happen. We have to be so careful of that. And I love Paul and Barnabas's response. Look at verse 14. When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are, so, we are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you so that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way, and yet he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. They corrected it immediately. They pushed back totally. All glory goes to God. This is not of us. We're just like you are. The only difference is that God has separated us for a work that he's doing through us. We get no credit. What credit does the hammer take? None. Just an instrument in God's hands. We're no different than you are. Men, the same as you are, pushing back. And again, even, even with that, it came with great difficulty. We see what happens next, verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. The enemies pursued them all the way from Antioch. That over 100 miles this, this group came from following after them from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel in that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It tells us that these, these the enemies of the gospel that they, they stoned Paul, took him outside of the city, and left him for dead. Now, we don't know if he literally died and God rose him, or if he was so beaten and bloodied and bruised that, that he was on the verge of death, they just thought and thought he was dead. Either way, the fact that he gets up and goes back into the city blows me away. Yeah. I'm getting up, I'm going another direction. It tells us, though, the next day they moved on to Derby, which is a little, little bit away. Again, we could see the map here. And in that, in that city, Derby, again, great fruit. Many come to faith. But notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that they faced great persecution there. Just great fruit. 
How many of you, if you're Paul, and you all of a sudden now, you, you just got stoned in the last city, left for dead. Now you're at this new city. Ministry's going great. No problems. How many are staying? <laughs> I'm thinking, all right, okay. Whew, just nice respite. I'm, I'm staying here for a couple years, just chilling out. But he doesn't. And notice on the map, he goes back to, eventually, as we read the rest of chapter 14, he ends up back in Antioch, sharing with the, the, the believers there, the church that sent him out, all the great things that he did. Notice where Derby is, and notice where Antioch is. Again, if I'm going back to Antioch, I'm taking that nice little short route there. I might even take the coastal highway and just go right around. That's not what he does. He goes back through the places that he faced, it all, faced all the persecution in. The first place he goes back to is the city that tried to kill him, stone him to death. And he retraces all of those steps back through all of those places. Why? To encourage the church, to come alongside the believers that are there, strengthening them, encouraging them, putting leadership together in the churches so that, so that the gospel can, can continue to thrive and be spread in those areas. But again, I'm thinking, Paul, what in the world would possess somebody to do that? The world would look at that and say, that's crazy. You just climbed over a mountain that, that is virtually impossible to climb. Every, turn, every corner you turn, there's poisonous snakes, there's, there's starving lions, there's everything that you have, everything. You get to the other side, and you could take this nice little smooth path the rest of the way, or you could go back over the top and go back, and he chooses to go. The world says, that's nuts. What would possess somebody to do that? Who would do that? Somebody who understood something that the world doesn't. You see, the world would say, the only way I would do that is if I had, if I, at the end of it all, I had, got a lot of money. There's a lot of money waiting for me at the end of that. Or fame. I'll go through all of that, but I want the world to know me afterwards. Or power. Paul had all of that. He gave it all away to follow Jesus. Why? Because he knows something the world doesn't. He saw something the world didn't. Tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul speaking of himself, he got a glimpse of heaven. The Lord allowed him to see and to hear. And he said, I can't even tell you. It would be unlawful for me to try to describe what I saw and what I heard. It's that that he wrote after that, Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings, all that we might face here, it's not even worthy to compare to what awaits us as Christians in heaven. Paul's entire attitude his entire outlook, what would, what would cause him to do what he did can be summed up in 10 words that he wrote. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. The world looks at religion and says it's impersonal, it's impractical, it's impossible. This, this idea of religion, okay, I'll give it, there may be a God out there, but it's, it's, it's totally impersonal. It's an impersonal God. It's impractical. What does it have to do with my everyday life? 
And by the way, it's impossible. I have to keep all of these rules. I have to do all of these things. I fail at them all the time. And that's the way the world looks at religion. And you know what? They're right. Religion is impersonal, impractical, and impossible. But that's not what Paul's talking about, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. That's what he's talking about. That's why he did what he did. And guys, a relationship with Jesus, there is not a more personal relationship that you can ever have. It's so personal to him that he took every one of your sins to the cross. Individually, he paid for, atoned for every one of your sins. That's how personal it is to him. It doesn't get more personal than that. We can have a tendency to look that when Jesus went to the cross, he carried with him the weight of the sin of the entire world. Yes, that is true. But the weight of each individual sin that I've ever committed was enough to crush him. And the same for you. And he did it all personally for you. Personally for me. It doesn't get any more personal than that. Practically, it doesn't get any more practical either because he wants to share every moment with you. Every, every hurt that you have, he wants to go along with it with you. Every discouragement that you have, he wants to be there with you. Every thought that you have, he wants you to surrender it to him. It doesn't get any more practical than that. Every aspect of our lives, he wants to come alongside us with. You might be thinking, why, why would I do that? Why would I want to sh share every thought, every action, everything, take it to him? Oh, I don't, because he's God. He's almighty, all-powerful God. He's the alpha and the omega. He knows the beginning and the end. He is the beginning and the end. He knows tomorrow. He knows next week. He knows next month. He knows all of that. You don't. He's sovereign. He's in control. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. The author of Hebrews tells us that we don't have a high priest. We don't have a king who can't understand us. We have a king who became one of us. To endure and to suffer and to go through everything that we go through, yet without sin. So that right now we can go to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Doesn't get any more practical than that. And guys, this personal, practical relationship is only possible because he did it all. This relationship is not about a bunch of do-do-do's. It's about what he has done, done, done. He took everything upon himself. When he hung on the cross and said, it is finished, that means paid in full, done, it's the only way it's possible. But it, it is impossible, but it is him possible. <laughs> and it's only when we come to that realization and we embrace that for all that it is for each of us that we can say what is next. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. The next part, to die is gain, only happens after we embrace the fullness of that first part. Because if you don't, if to you to live is money, 
wealth, possessions, to die is to leave it to, every, to somebody else. If to you is, is knowledge, is, is fame, is power, to die is to leave it all behind. There's nothing left for you. But if to you to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because as Peter tells us, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. To die is gain. If to me, to live is Christ. As we prepare to celebrate communion this morning, we, we celebrate that fact that this is all possible because of him, to have this relationship with him. But I want to speak real, real quickly to those who are in the room who have never made that decision to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You right now, the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, know that if you're going to be straight up honest, to you is not to live for Christ. There's other things. There, there's, other, there's, other, there's other parts. You've, you've tried to earn your way. Perhaps you, you know, you've tried to somehow appease God in other ways. But now understanding that there's only one way. If, if that's you, I, I, I want to encourage you today to to make today the day that you give your life to Jesus. You may have gone to church your whole life. You may, you may your parents are Christians. My grandparents, my, my grandpa was a pastor. That doesn't, that doesn't make you a Christian. That doesn't save you. Because just as personal as Jesus made it by dying on the cross for you, that's how personal you have to make it. You need to make that decision yourself to give your life to Jesus, to trust in him and him alone. And if there's anybody here today that wants to, wants to make that happen, you want to give your life to Jesus, know that your sins are forgiven, know that you have eternal life, know that you have all of these things, that when you die it isn't just over, but it, that there's this eternity waiting for you that has been purchased and reserved for you. You want that? Is there anybody today, if you raise your hand, I'd like to pray with you. Praise the Lord. Amen. Anyone else that says, I want that today? I want to know that, that my sins are forgiven. I want to know that, that Christ is mine, and I, I am his, and he is mine. Anyone else? Praise the Lord. Amen. Anybody else? Praise God. Can I ask you that raised your hands, would you please stand, and those around them, would you stand with them? And just place your hands on them, and would you, would you just pray right now, if that is you, and you want that, you just go before God in your heart right now, and you say, Lord Jesus, I make you Lord of my life right now. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of fighting this. I'm a sinner, and I need a savior, and Jesus, I believe you died for me. I believe you paid the full penalty for my sin. So right now, I make this choice to make you Lord of my life. 
Come into my heart. Wash my sins away. Give me eternal life. I thank you. I thank you for that precious gift that you gave to me. Go before me now as I desire to follow you the rest of my days. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please stand? Let's all stand. And after, after we pray, uh, we're going to have some time of worship, and the, el- the ushers will come up, and as, we, as they distribute the elements here in a little bit, make sure you grab both cups. The juice is in the top cup. The bread is in the bottom cup. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your power, for your word that continues to do what only it can do, and that is to draw people to yourself, to change hearts. And Lord, we thank you for that work. Lord, we thank you for for saving and rescuing all of us because we all were like the world is now. We we all, Lord, were were chasing after the world. We, We were all under the the power of our enemy, but Lord, now we are children of yours. And Lord, we want to be bold in our faith, not in our flesh. Lord, help us to recognize who the enemy is. This is not a physical thing. It's a spiritual battle. We need divinely powerful weaponry, Lord, and that is your word. But we want to use it properly. Lord, help us to speak the truth in love to not be ashamed of you, the one who has saved our soul. Lord, we need wisdom to know when to go and when to stay. Lord, we need to hear from you. So Lord, clear away the distractions. Lord, we want to be purposeful in that this week, putting aside those things that distract our attention from you. We want to hear from you, Lord. And then Lord, as you speak to us, our desire is to be obedient in what you call us to do. And Lord, that we give you all praise and honor and glory because you alone are worthy of the glory, Lord. We thank you and we praise you this morning.